Chapter Three of the Invasion by William LeCue. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Weiss. Chapter Three: News of the Enemy. Terror and excitement reigned everywhere. The wildest rumors were hourly afloat. London was a seething stream of breathless multitudes of every class. On Monday morning the newspapers throughout the kingdom had devoted greater part of their space to the extraordinary intelligence from Norfolk and Suffolk and Essex and other places. Only the slow, old-fashioned globe remained asleep, or pretended to know nothing of what was in progress. That we were actually invaded was plain, but most of the newspapers happily preserved a calm, dignified tone and made no attempt at sensationalism the situation was far too serious. Like the public, however, the press had been taken entirely by surprise. The blow had been so sudden and so staggering that half the alarming reports were discredited. In addition to the details of the enemy's operations, as far as could yet be ascertained, the morning post on Monday contained an account of a mysterious occurrence at Chatham, which read as follows. Chatham September 1, 11.30 p.m. An extraordinary accident took place on the Medway about eight o'clock this evening. The steamer Polestar, 1,200 tons register, with a cargo of cement from Frinsbury, was leaving for Hamburg and came into collision with the Frauenlaub of Bremen, a somewhat larger boat which was inward bound in a narrow part of the channel about halfway between Chatham and Sheerness. Various accounts of the mishap are current, but whichever of the vessels was responsible for the bad steering or neglect of the ordinary rules of the road, it is certain that the Frauenlaub was cut into by the stem of the Pole Star on her port bow and sank almost across the channel. The Pole Star swung alongside her after the collision, and very soon afterwards sank in an almost parallel position. Tugs and steamboats carrying a number of naval officers and the port authorities are about to proceed to the scene of the accident, and if, as seems probable, there is no chance of raising the vessels, steps will be at once taken to blow them up. In the present state of our foreign relations, such an obstruction directly across the entrance to one of our principal war ports is a national danger and will not be allowed to remain a moment longer than can be helped. September 2nd. An extraordinary denouement has followed the collision in the Medway reported in my telegram of last night, which renders it impossible to draw any other conclusion than that the affair is anything but an accident. Everything now goes to prove that the whole business was premeditated and was the result of an organized plot with the object of bottling up the numerous men of war that are now being hurriedly equipped for service in Chatham Dockyard. In the words of Scripture, an enemy hath done this, and there can be very little doubt as to the quarter from which the outrage was engineered. It is nothing less than an outrage to perpetrate what is in reality an overt act of hostility in a time of profound peace, however much the political horizon may be darkened by lowering war clouds. We are living under a government whose leader lost no time in announcing that no fear of being sneered at as a little Englander would deter him from seeking peace and ensuring it by a reduction of our naval and military armaments, even at that time known to be inadequate 
to the demands likely to be made upon them if our empire is to be maintained. We trust, however, that even this parochially-minded statesman will lose no time in probing the conspiracy to its depths, and in seeking instant satisfaction from those personages, however highly placed and powerful, who have committed this outrage on the laws of civilization. As soon as the news of the collision reached the dockyard, the senior officer at Kethole Reach was ordered by wire to take steps to prevent any vessel from going up the river, and he at once dispatched several picket-boats to the entrance to warn incoming ships of the blocking of the channel, while a couple of other boats were sent up to within a short distance of the obstruction to make assurance doubly sure. The harbor signals ordering suspension of all movings were also hoisted at Garrison Point. Among other ships which were stopped in consequence of these measures was the Van Geisen, a big steamer hailing from Rotterdam, laden, it was stated, with steel rails for the London, Chatham, and Dover Railway, which were to be landed at Port Victoria. She was accordingly allowed to proceed, and anchored, or appeared to anchor, just off the railway pier at that place. Ten minutes later the officer of the watch on board HMS Medici reported that he thought she was getting under way again. It was then pretty dark. An electric searchlight being switched on, the Van Geisen was discovered steaming up the river at a considerable speed. The Mendici flashed the news to the flagship, which at once fired a gun, hoisted the recall, and the Van Geisen's number in international code, and dispatched her steam pinnace with orders to overhaul the Dutchman and stop him at whatever cost. A number of the Marines on guard were sent in her with their rifles. The Van Geisen seemed well acquainted with the channel, and continually increased her speed as she went up the river, so that she was within half a mile of the scene of the accident before the steamboat came up with her. The officer in charge called to the skipper through the megaphone to stop his engines and to throw him a rope, as he wanted to come on board. After pretending for some time not to understand him, the skipper slowed his engines and said, Revel, come alongside gangway. As the pin is hooked on at the gangway, a heavy iron cylinder cover was dropped into her from the height of the Van Geisen's deck. It knocked the bowman overboard and crashed into the forepart of the boat, knocking a big hole in the port side forward. She swung off at an angle and stopped to pick up the man overboard. Her crew succeeded in rescuing him, but she was making water fast, and there was nothing for it but to run her into the bank. The lieutenant in charge ordered a rifle to be fired at the Van Geisen to bring her to, but she paid not the smallest attention, as might have been expected, and went on her way with gathering speed. The report, however, served to attract the attention of the two picket-boats which were patrolling up the river. As she turned a bend in the stream, they both shot up alongside out of the darkness, and ordered her peremptorily to stop. But the only answer they received was the sudden extinction of all lights in the steamer. They kept alongside, or rather one of them did, but they were quite helpless to stay the progress of the big wall-sided steamer. The faster of the picket boats shot ahead with the object of warning those who were busy examining the wrecks, but the Van Geisen going all she knew was close behind, an indistinguishable black blur in the darkness, and hardly had the officer in the picket boat delivered his warning before she was heard close at hand. Within a couple of hundred yards of the two wrecks 
she slowed down for fear of running right over them. On she came, inevitable as fate. There was a crash as she came into collision with the central deck-houses of the Frauenlobe, and as her bows scraped past the funnel of the Pole Star. Then followed no fewer than half a dozen muffled reports. Her engines went astern for a moment, and down she settled athwart the other two steamers, heeling over to port as she did so. All was turmoil and confusion. None of the dockyard and naval craft present were equipped with searchlights. The harbor master, the captain of the yard, even the admiral superintendent, who had just come down in his steam launch, all bawled out orders. Lights were flashed and lanterns swung up and down in the vain endeavor to see more of what had happened. Two simultaneous shouts of, "'Man overboard!' came from the tugs and boats at opposite sides of the river. When a certain amount of order was restored, it was discovered that a big dockyard tug was settling down by the head. It seems she had been grazed by the Van Geisen as she came over the obstruction, and forced against some portion of one of the foundered vessels which had pierced a hole in her below the water line. In the general excitement the damage had not been discovered, and now she was sinking fast. Hawsers were made fast to her with the utmost expedition possible in order to tow her clear of the piled-up wreckage, but it was too late. There was only just time to rescue her crew before she too added herself to the underwater barricade. As for the crew of the Van Geisen, it is thought that all must have gone down in her, as no trace of them has as yet been discovered, despite a most diligent search, for it was considered that, in an affair which had been so carefully planned as this certainly must have been, some provision must surely have been made for the escape of the crew. Those who have been down at the scene of the disaster report that it will be impossible to clear the channel in less than a week or ten days, using every resource of the dockyard. A little later I thought I would go down to the dockyard on the off chance of picking up any further information. The Metropolitan Policeman at the gate would on no account allow me to pass at that hour, and I was just turning away when, by a great piece of good fortune, I ran up against Commander Shelley. I was on board his ship as correspondent during the maneuvers of the year before last, and what are you doing down here was his very natural inquiry as we had shaken hands. I told him I had been down in Chatham for a week past as special correspondent reporting on the half-hearted preparations being made for the possible mobilization, and took the opportunity of asking him if he could give me any further information about the collision between the three steamers in the Medway. Well, said he, the best thing you can do is to come right along with me. I have just been hawked out of bed to superintend the diving operations, which will begin the moment there is a gleam of daylight. Needless to say, this just suited me, and I hastened to thank him and to accept his kind offer. All right, he said, but I shall have to make one small condition. And that is, I queried, merely to let me censor your telegrams before you send them, he returned. You see, the Admiralty might not like to have too much said about this business, and I don't want to find myself in the dirt tub. The stipulation was a most reasonable one, and however I disliked the notion of having probably my best paragraphs eliminated, I could not but assent to my friend's proposition. So away we marched down the echoing spaces of the almost deserted dockyard 
till we arrived at the Thunderbolt pontoon. Here lay a pinaz with steam up, and lighted down the sliding soap of the old ironclad by the lantern of the policeman on duty, we stepped on board and shot out into the center of the stream. We blew our whistles and the coxswain waved a lantern, whereupon a small tug that had a couple of dockyard lighters attached gave a hoarse toot in response and followed us down the river. We sped along in the darkness against the strong tide that was making upstream, passed up North Castle, that quaint old Tudor fortress with its long line of modern powder magazines, and along under the deeper shadows beneath Who Woods, till we came abreast of the medley of mudflats and grass-grown islets just beyond them. Here, above the thud of the engines and the splash of the water, a thin, long-drawn-out cry wavered through the night. "'Someone hailing the boat, sir,' reported the lookout forward. We all heard it. "'Ease down,' ordered Shelley, and hardly moving against the rushing tideway, we listened for its repetition. Again the voice was raised in quavering supplication. "'What the dickens does he say?' queried the commander. "'It's German,' I answered. "'I know that language well. I think he's asking for help. May I answer him?' "'By all means. Perhaps he belongs to one of those steamers.' The same thought was in my own mind. I hailed in return, asking where he was and what he wanted. The answer came back that he was a shipwrecked seaman who was cold, wet, and miserable, and implored to be taken off from the islet where he found himself cut off from everywhere by water and darkness. We ran the boat's nose into the bank, and presently succeeded in hauling aboard a miserable object, wet through and plastered from head to foot with black medway mud. The broken remains of a cork life-belt hung from his shoulders. A dram of whiskey somewhat revived him. And now, said Shelley, you'd better cross-examine him. We may get something out of the fellow. The foreigner crouched down shivering in the stern sheets half covered with a yellow oilskin that some charitable blue-jacket had thrown over him, appeared to me in the light of the lantern that stood on the deck before him to be not only suffering from cold, but from terror. A few moments' conversation with him confirmed my suspicions. I turned to Shelley and exclaimed, "'He says he'll tell us everything if we spare his life,' I explained. "'I'm sure I don't want to shoot the chap,' replied the commander. "'I suppose he's implicated in this bottling-up affair. If he is, he jolly well deserves it, but I don't suppose anything will be done to him. Anyway, his information may be valuable, so you may tell him that he is all right as far as I'm concerned and I will do my best for him with the Admiral. I dare say that will satisfy him. If not, you might threaten him a bit. Tell him anything you like if you think it will make him speak. To cut a long story short, I found the damp Dutchman amenable to reason, and the following is the substance of what I elicited from him. He had been a deckhand on board the Van Geysen. When she left Rotterdam, he did not know that the trip was anything out of the way. There was a new skipper whom he had not seen before, and there were also two new mates with a new chief engineer. Another steamer followed them all the way till they arrived at the Noor. On the way over he and several other seamen were sent for by the captain and asked if they would volunteer for a dangerous job, promising them fifty pounds apiece if it came off all right. He and five others agreed, as did two or three stokers, and were then ordered to remain aft and not communicate with any others of the crew. 
off the Nur all the remainder were transferred to the following steamer, which steamed off to the eastward. After they were gone the selected men were told that the officers all belonged to the Imperial German Navy, and by orders of the Kaiser were about to attempt to block up the Medway. A collision between two other ships had been arranged for, one of which was loaded with a mass of old steel rails into which liquid cement had been run, so that her hold contained a solid impenetrable block. The Van Geisen carried a similar cargo, and was provided with an arrangement for blowing holes in her bottom. The crew were provided with life-belts, and the half of the money promised, and all except the captain, the engineer, and the two mates dropped overboard just before arriving at the sunken vessels. They were advised to make their way to Gravesend, and then to shift for themselves as best they could. He had found himself on a small island, and could not muster up courage to plunge into the cold water again in the darkness. "'By Jove! This means war with Germany, man! War!' was Shelley's comment. At two o'clock this afternoon we knew that it did, for the news of the enemy's landing in Norfolk was signaled down from the dockyard. We also knew from the divers that the cargo of the sunken steamers was what the rescued seamen had stated it to be. Our bottle has been fairly well corked. This amazing revelation showed how cleverly contrived was the German plan of hostilities. All our splendid ships at Chatham had, in that brief half-hour, been bottled up and rendered utterly useless. Yet the authorities were not blameless in the matter, for in November 1905 a foreign warship actually came up the Medway in broad daylight and was not noticed until she began to bang away her salutes, much to the utter consternation of everyone else. This incident, however, was but one of the many illustrations of Germans' craft and cunning. The whole scheme had been years in careful preparation. She intended to invade us, and regarded every stratagem as allowable in her sudden dash upon England, an expedition which promised to result in the most desperate war of modern times. At that moment the globe, at last aroused from its long and peaceful sleep, reproduced those plain prophetic words of Lord Overstone written some years before to the Royal Defence Commission. Negligence alone can bring about the calamity under discussion. Unless we suffer ourselves to be surprised, we cannot be invaded with success. It is useless to discuss what will occur or what can be done after London has fallen into the hands of an invading foe. The apathy which may render the occurrence of such a catastrophe possible will not afterwards enable the country enfeebled, dispirited, and disorganized by the loss of its capital to redeem the fatal error. Was that prophecy to be fulfilled? Some highly interesting information was given by the Ipswich correspondent of the Central News. Reported briefly, it was as follows. Shortly before three o'clock on Sunday morning, the Coast Guard at Lowestoft, Corton, and Beach End discovered that their telephonic communication was interrupted, and half an hour later, to the surprise of everyone, a miscellaneous collection of mysterious craft were seen approaching the harbour, and within an hour many of them were high and dry on the beach, while others were lashed alongside the old dock, the new fish docks of the Great Eastern Railway, and the wharves disembarking a huge force of German infantry, cavalry, motor infantry, 
and artillery. The town awakened from its slumbers was utterly paralyzed, the more so when it was discovered that the railway to London was already interrupted and the telegraph lines all cut. On landing the enemy commandeered all provisions, including all motor-cars they could discover, horses and forage, while the banks were seized and the infantry, falling in, marched up Old Nelson Street into High Street and out upon the Beckles Road. The first care of the invaders was to prevent the people of Lowestoft damaging the swing bridge, a strong guard being instantly mounted upon it, and so quietly and orderly was the landing effected that it was plain the German plans of invasion were absolutely perfect in every detail. Few hitches seemed to occur. The mayor was summoned at six o'clock by General von Kronhelm, the generalissimo of the German army, and briefly informed that the town of Lowestoft was occupied and that all armed resistance would be punished by death. Then, ten minutes later, when the German war flag was flying from several flagstaffs in various parts of the town, the people realized their utter helplessness. The Germans, of course, knew that, irrespective of the weather, a landing could be effected at Lowestoft where the fish docks and wharves, with their many cranes, were capable of dealing with a large amount of stores. The Deans, that flat sandy plain between the upper town and the sea, they turned into a camping ground and large numbers were billeted in various quarters of the town itself. The people were terror-stricken. To appeal to London for help was impossible, as the place had been cut entirely off, and around it a strong chain of outposts had already been thrown, preventing anyone from escaping. The town had, in a moment, as it seemed, fallen at the mercy of the foreigners. Even the important-looking police constables of Lowestoft with their little canes were crestfallen, sullen, and inactive. While the landing was continuing during all Sunday, the advance guard moved rapidly over Mutford Bridge, along the Beckles Road, occupying a strong position on the west side of the high ground east of Lowestoft. Beckles, where von Kronhelm established his headquarters, resting as it does on the River Waveney, is strongly held. The enemy's position appears to run from Windle Hill, one mile northeast of Gillingham, thence northwest through Bulls Green, Herringfleet Hill, over to Grove Farm and Hill House, to Ravingham, whence it turns easterly to Haddiscoe, which is at present its northern limit. The total front from Beckles Bridge north is about five miles, and commands the whole of the flat plain west towards Norwich. It has its south flank resting on the River Waveney and to the north on the Thorpe Marshes. The chief artillery position is at Toft Monks, the highest point. Upon the high tower of Beckles Church is established a signal station, communication being made constantly with low stuff by helio by day and acetylene lamps by night. The enemy's position has been most carefully chosen, for it is naturally strong, and, being well held to protect Lowestoft from any attack from the west, the landing can continue uninterruptedly, for Lowestoft beach and docks are now entirely out of the line of any British fire. Proclamation Citizens of London The news of the bombardment of the city of Newcastle and the landing of the German army at Hull, Weybourne, Yarmouth, and other places along the east coast is unfortunately confirmed. The enemy's intention is to march upon the City of London, which must be resolutely defended. 
the British nation and the citizens of London, in face of these great events, must be energetic in order to vanquish the invader. The advance must be challenged foot by foot. The people must fight for king and country. Great Britain is not yet dead, for indeed, the more serious her danger, the stronger will be her unanimous patriotism. God save the king. Harrison, Lord Mayor. Mansion House, London, September 3, 1910. March outposts are at Blytheburg, Wenhaston, Holton, Halesworth, Wissett, Rumberg, Homersfield, and Bungay, and then north to Haddiscoe, while cavalry patrols watch by day, the line roughly being from Lyston through Saxmanham, Framlingham, and Tannington to Hoxney. The estimate gleaned from various sources in Lowstuff and Beckles is that up to Monday at midday nearly a whole army corps with stores, guns, ammunition, etc., had already landed, while there are also reports of a further landing at Yarmouth and at a spot still farther north, but at present there are no details. The enemy, he concluded, are at present in a position of absolute security. End of chapter 3 Recording by Tom Weiss, Tom's Audiobooks.com